0: Book two, chapter Ten of the Mask by Florence Irwin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Howlands reached Jersey City just as the October night was falling. Alison kept thinking of that other October evening exactly two years ago when she had seen New York for the first time. The trip had been warm and tiresome, and they were glad to stand outside while crossing the river the front deck being crowded they betook themselves to the after deck and had it all to themselves not a soul was in sight the moon was just rising and gilding a path across the swiftly flowing water a slight breeze that had sprung up fanned their faces gratefully alison leaned against the rail clasping her son in her arms while phil arranged their various pieces of hand luggage around him on the floor give me the little fellow he said gad how he's grown he's really heavy isn't he yes and awfully strong his little spine is just like steel hold him tight dear he gives such sudden twists as they drew nearer new york alison began to be assailed by doubts she couldn't help remembering those horrible spring weeks when she had been unable to find a decent servant and when everything had been upside down of course the baby was older now the broken nights were a thing of the past but the older he grew the more constant watching he needed you couldn't just put him down and let him sleep by the hour in the rectory everything had gone smoothly but there good servants were always at one's beck and call everything ran as on greased wheels no one was hurried or worried and in consequence no one was irritable. Alison stood with her face turned toward the moonlit sky. No one spoke. Becoming vaguely conscious of a movement at her side, the young wife turned and saw her husband supporting the baby on the rail, while he prepared to shift the weight from one arm to the other. She had just opened her lips to say, Take care, dear, when a puff of wind blew Phil's hat from his head. Instinctively he raised his hand to seize it, and in one sickening half-second the horrible thing had happened. There was a lurch, a little form falling backwards, a wild clutch and cry from Alison, a sharp baby scream, and then nothing but the wake of frothy water, beaten into soapsuds by the boat's paddle-wheel, that and the swiftly rushing, seaward-flowing current of the river. Alison felt herself sinking, while millions of hammers began to beat in her brain. For a lightning flash she seemed to know nothing, and then she saw her husband, white, wild-eyed, hatless, preparing to jump into the water. The sight restored her tottering reason. Instantly she realized the futility of effort, not its risk, but its absolute futility. The moment the thing had happened it was already too late for rescue. Rescue was impossible. Seizing Phil with both hands, she put forth all her strength to hold him. Stop it, she whispered, and her breath came in a sharp hiss. Stop it! You can do nothing! You can't swim! And it is over! Over! And then, without an idea of what she was doing, she began to repeat aloud, God, let it be over! God, let it be over! God, let it be over! Together they stood, shaking as in an ague, almost unconscious of time and place. Alison had but one definite thought. No one could help them, so no one must know. They remained thus, paralyzed, until the sounds of clanking chains announced that the boat was nearly in presently came the thumping and grinding against the wharf horses feet and heavy drays began to move and the hurrying rush of human footsteps told that everyone would soon be ashore come said alison dragging herself with an effort out of her vague aching numbness come we must go home she staggered as she walked phil obeyed her as might a person in a trance above everything else there rang in alison's ears the sound of that one awful baby cry for years to come she was destined to hear that cry in the echoing tread of feet and in the moan of the night wind it would rise to her ears above the noise of crowded streets and the lilt of cadenced song like jeremiah of old she would long mourn is it nothing to you all ye that pass by through the boat across the ferry-house out on to the street there went a strange couple in front strode a long-legged haggard hatless man loaded with bundles and blind to all that he passed in his wake staggered a woman who looked as though she would drop in her tracks empty-handed except for a child's coat and knitted blanket which hung over her arm Phil paused near a cab in a dazed sort of way. Get in, he said. Where to? asked the driver. The wild-looking man stared at him. I don't know, he answered. Crazy as a loon, thought the cabbie. Allison gave the number, and that was all that either of them remembered till they found themselves, after repeated fumblings at the lock, in their own dark, empty apartment without waiting to divest themselves of their wraps they sank into two chairs and began to cry like a pair of children and that was their homecoming alison was the first to rouse herself she never knew whether it was after minutes or hours not a clock ticked in the apartment the silence was terrible there is nothing more appalling than soberant silence as to the time What did it matter? What did anything matter? What was the use of looking at a watch? There was nothing in the world but that awful cry and the awful truth. She got her husband to make a light and to help her build a fire. Just as she raised her hands to take off her hat, a thought struck her and she stopped. Phil, she said, we must mail that postal to mother. He turned his ravaged face on her. ''What are you going to do about all of them up there?'' he asked. ''I don't know. We must think. The first thing is to get this postal off. Then if they don't hear from us for three or four days they'll think nothing of it. I can't stay here alone while you go out. We'll go together.'' Together they went down to the street corner and back. They saw nothing that they passed dimly they realized that somewhere there was a city and a street and that the street had lights and noises but the real world of course consisted of a horrible stretch of rushing black water lighted in one narrow path only by the rising moon and beaten into foam by the passage of a boat after they had taken off their wraps they unpacked the luncheon basket and tried to eat but that was prevented by those strange aching lumps in their throats. It was a useless and wearisome effort. Bill went into the pantry and returned with two rather stiff doses of brandy. These they swallowed as one would swallow medicine. Once on his feet the man seemed restless. He wandered around the room, picking up books and trinkets, gazing at them with unseeing eyes, and then replacing them at last he sank again into a chair took his head between his hands and gazed ahead of him with sombre eyes alison finally insisted on bed for both of them the ordinary routine of preparation was a weary drag but it had to be gone through some time oh those nights those wretched torturing nights when we seek to drown heartache in sleep the sleep that won't come the thoughts and pictures that won't flee if there is anything worse than daylight for prolonging visions it is darkness exhaustion finally brought fitful slumber sleep was an ache rousing into semi-consciousness was an ache entire wakefulness was the most horrible ache of all when alison went in the early morning to prepare her bath the sight and the sound of the running water almost produced physical nausea she had to brace herself against it with all her will the weary day dragged on followed by other days scarcely less weary on the fourth alison came to her husband with a sheet of paper in her hand read it dear she said his hand shook as he held it mother and father my baby is dead Write to me, love me, comfort me, but never, as you care for me, ask me to speak or write of this again. Details are useless. The fact is all that matters. Tell the others for me. Don't come down. It would be impossible in meeting not to talk of that which I think it would kill me to discuss. Alison as he handed the letter back, Phil went white to his very lips is that what you really want to do he asked or are you shielding me you mustn't you must never think of that do whatever gives you most comfort this is it she said i could not bear anything else i shall write to your father in just the same way he crossed to her side and took her in his arms alison he said brokenly i don't believe there is another woman like you in the world one of the most wonderful of the many wonderful provisions of providence is that time softens edges and touches bleeding hearts with a healing finger it is not that we forget we never forget but if early hurts were never even partially healed later hurts would mean death the ever accumulating wounds of life would grow too heavy to be born by the time six weeks had passed alison could waken to the recurring days with some degree of courage to face them she could bend a little of her mind to her daily tasks she was as thin and white as though she had dragged through months of illness and her black dress accentuated her pallor phil's friends did not come often to the house in these days and for that she was thankful she and phil spent day after day and evening after evening alone except for each other alison went to church nearly every day of her life when there was no service she could at least spend an hour in prayer in the dim quiet place that always strengthened her courage it was a proof of the beauty of her faith that it never wavered never did she even ask herself what she had done that this punishment should have been meted to her she knew that there must be bitter draughts in the cup of life and that he who least merited sorrow had worn its thorny crown she never questioned his love and she never failed to find comfort in prayer and thus to her was fulfilled the promise ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope phil had grown wonderfully gentle and thoughtful for him he spent all his evenings at home for alison wouldn't go out and he wouldn't leave her he worked more than he had ever done since their marriage he drank less because the surroundings did not tempt him to drink when he went out on an errand he nearly always brought back a few flowers or a little fresh fruit He even insisted that Alison should have a servant. And, as coincidences do sometimes occur even in real life, a servant presented herself almost at their very door. Over on 6th Avenue there was a delicatessen shop which the Howlands had patronized for two years. One day, following a long talk with Phil, Alison asked the German proprietor of this shop if he knew of a woman whom she could get for a general servant he knew of no woman but he knew of a maid his own seventeen-year-old daughter lena who had been well trained in german housewifery as mrs howland's servant she could live at home her father himself would come to fetch her each evening lena proved a godsend and her advent transformed the Howland's from peripatetic street-wanderers into respectable home-dwellers. Alison really marketed, and they both really ate. Alison's former predictions were verified by the fact that the new arrangement, even including Lena's wages and food, was less expensive than the old one. Lena's mistress, however, began to feel time hanging heavy on her hands. She still read omnivorously and wrote much, but she couldn't write with the same preoccupation as before her sorrow. She found herself stopping and going into long fits of reverie, or wandering restlessly about the apartment. She decided that she could get up a greater interest in her work if she had some spur in the shape of a specific object. She and Phil had a long talk, and it ended in Alison deciding, rather to her husband's horror, to take up some course at Columbia. She chose a course in literature, and was soon so interested that she decided to add to it. Some lectures in political economy next attracted her. The two subjects were great time-eaters, and that was what she sought often for hours the scratching of two pens and the rustle of paper would be the only sounds in the howland's apartment when work was over there were always plenty of questions to discuss together alison took special pains to draw out her husband's artistic perceptions and she marvelled meanwhile at his indifference to facts she was struck by his quick fine sense of values no less than by his astonishing ignorance on subjects which had never interested him his later education having been self-conducted and desultory had produced a strangely haphazard mental equipment without his naturally brilliant linguistic endowment he would almost certainly have remained an ignorant man even with it his intense laziness and disinterest concerning subjects which did not appeal to him left him most unevenly developed she studied him curiously almost as a mother would study a child who having apparently inherited from some unknown forbearer seems almost a stranger to her who bore him never had alison succeeded in getting so close to her husband never even in the days of their engagement had he been so much in her thoughts and never it is safe to say had any one ever tried so conscientiously and so wisely to round him out phil on his side studied his wife almost as closely he saw sides of her mind that he had never before seen they still disagreed on many subjects but their arguments were stimulating to both of them. Phil Howland had always been distinctly prejudiced against clever females, but when you came to live with one, it made a difference. This one didn't pall, at any rate. Alison's birthday fell in August, and her father's latest birthday gift had been a check for a generous sum, which still remained untouched. She proceeded to use it as a means of hearing good music and she developed an understanding taste for the new school of composers who were just coming to be known in america she would come out from a concert tingling intellectually and emotionally and walk home on air to tell phil of the wonderful experience this taste of hers he did not share despite his quick appreciation of beautiful sound in words music of that sort bored him he liked melody and tune and sequence. On the other hand, his enjoyment of pictures and tapestries and statues was keener than Alison's. She studied them all with him, but her appreciation was not so great. This was because of the difference of their natures. She appreciated with her mind, he with his senses. Even Alison's music excitement came from her brain and she had if possible too little of sensuousness in her her keenest enjoyment was always intellectual rather than emotional so that if there is anything in the law of attraction between opposites she and her husband were not so badly mated after all one evening as they sat chatting by their fireside keppner came in to make one of his rare visits he had hardly been in the house three times since their return. He carried an evening paper with him and laid it on the table. After a while, Alison picked it up and ran her eye over the first page. Suddenly she caught her breath. Phil, she gasped. Listen to this. Married in San Francisco within 24 hours after securing Reno divorce the beautiful mrs shapley weds the multimillionaire samuel q wilkins did you ever know anything so scandalous well they keep doing it you know said her husband taking the paper i should say that mrs shapley was the exact person from whom you might expect it if she didn't do something of the sort it would be because she couldn't pull it off this explains the way shapley looked the other day I met him downtown. He was seedy and shabby, and he'd been drinking. For the first time since I've known him, he seemed to want to avoid me. I noticed it particularly because, not having seen him for so long, I expected him to rush up and give me the glad hand. I think it is simply disgusting, cried Alison. He was perfectly devoted to her. She has probably broken his heart. Do you know anything of this Wilkins chap, Al? Phil demanded of his guest. Is he really so rich? I suppose he must be to have won the beauty. Yes, untold millions, I believe. Chewing gum. No. Certainly. Haven't you seen the Wilkins clean-breath advertisements in the street cars? Is that the man? Yes. Then she doesn't leap into the lap of the 400? not she not yet at any rate wilkins has a white marble palace up fifth avenue but no one ever goes into it they say how old is he about sixty-five or seventy good lord he must have money it's horrible said alison hotly it's quite a game responded keppner all through that winter mrs wilkins's name continued to be flaunted in the newspapers She was here, there, everywhere, stalking fashion in its haunts. She entertained elaborately, and her lavish hospitality and wonderful toilets were constantly described. Mrs. Wilkins evidently employed a press agent, and saw to it that he earned his salary. End of Book 2 Chapter 10